The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Jose Arieta, who is the Associate Deputy Assistant Secretary for Acquisitions at the United States Department of Health and Human Services. Jose, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's certainly an honor to be on the podcast, and I'm excited to kind of do this. Yes, welcome, Jose, and thanks for joining us. So we'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at HHS. Sure. Well, my name is Jose Arietta. I am the Associate Deputy Assistant Secretary for Acquisition at HHS. And my background is really as a contracting guy in the federal government who became a program manager and built large IT systems that would use machine learning to analyze biographical information about people and then evolved into an individual who has really started to play around with and implement blockchain and some forms of machine learning and artificial intelligence capabilities off the blockchain. So I've served in a number of different roles in the federal government with a specific focus on data, data analytics, and creating user-friendly systems in a human-centered fashion to actually help execute it in different mission spaces. Well, great. Well, it definitely sounds like you're doing a lot of interesting things and people may not necessarily be thinking about the Department of HHS really being part of that, the forefront of technology adoption. So it'd be great if you could tell us some of the ways that the department is currently adopting AI technologies and maybe how these ways are unique or similar to how other agencies or perhaps other groups are adopting AI. Yeah, so appreciate the question, Ron. And I think what's unique, so what you have to understand about HHS is we're a $1.145 trillion impact on U.S. GDP. So we're a very large organization. I think something like 25 cents of every dollar that's spent in the United States touches HHS and its ecosystem. As an entity, we'd be one of the largest economies in the world if we were a separate entity. And our role is specifically to actually protect the human condition. And there's no other entity in the world that does that. And a lot of people don't realize this, but the U.S. invests significantly in fighting and eliminating infectious diseases and has for a long period of time. And there's really no other organization globally kind of set up to operate that way. There's some NGOs that do it now, but it has not been that way until recent So when we look at our mission space, our goal is to try and put as much money as we can into protecting the human condition and as little money as we can into buying basic products, commodities, and services. And so what we've been doing with artificial intelligence and in particular and blockchain technologies, we've been saying to ourselves, how can we actually create insights so that we can drive costs down as it relates to operating in our mission space? so that we can put more money toward things like identifying the newest infections, diseases that may be showing up around the world, finding a cure for Ebola, curing sepsis, those types of items, really where we're protecting human lives. So I'm gonna give you guys a specific example of kind of what we've done. And we started this work in April 17th, and I just saw the demo on Monday, and I'm very excited to kind of share this with you. So I think over the last 18 months, 
we issued about a million contracts. And one of the things that we realized, we're a very decentralized organization. Our mission spaces are very spread out. And over the last 18 months, what we realized is it would be very powerful if we could actually get an understanding, a governance view of the activity that's occurring in our contract across that ginormous decentralized portfolio of work. Now, we could centralize all that. Centralization in a culture that's decentralized is very costly, number one. We all know that culture eats strategy for breakfast all the time and every time. So what we did, Ron and Kathleen, is we found that we had five contract writing systems where this data existed, these contracts with terms and conditions and pricing, and we layered it with blockchain technology. We actually took something called Hyperledger Fabric, which is a blockchain OS, and we layered it over these five different contract writing systems. And then, you know, to all the, anytime I've said this in public, I've had these old guys come out and I'm not putting down old guys and say, oh, government bureaucrat typically doesn't understand Mm -hmm. that bad data in is bad data out. So, you know, what we actually did to anybody that's thinking that is we used machine learning algorithms to actually cleanse the data and bring it into Hyperledger Fabric, meaning we basically analyzed the data and we said something like VER version V.6. VER.7 all mean version, and we would tag it as that, and then we would allow that to pass through to Hyperledger Fabric. And then any data sets that we didn't understand in that way, we put into a separate pool, and we actually went back and looked at it with humans and, and taught the algorithm how a person may have entered this insight in different manners so that we could pull it in and we have a standard data set. So not bad data in, bad data out. So five contract writing systems, suck all the data on a million contract records, terms and conditions and pricing, roll it onto something called Hyperledger Fabric. Now we have a data layer. Now we spend about $24, $26 billion a year in contracts. So by taking all the data out and putting it on Hyperledger, we're not shutting off our existing operations. Those five different contract writing systems are still functionally operating. They're still serving the 3,000, 2,800 people that do contracting across this department. But what we've done is we've created a platform or a data layer where we can actually start to modernize our business process and start to create analytical insights to actually drive better value for those people that are actually negotiating contracts for HHS without interrupting the way they currently do business. So it's very powerful because the approach we're taking is saying, we're not going to disrupt operations, but we're going to modernize at the same time. So then we went through and we actually wireframed out the entire life cycle of acquisition. What information do you need at what point in time to actually execute an acquisition? And the reason we did that, Ron and Kathleen, is because we want to make sure that we're only collecting information from industry or from our workforce one time, if it's possible, versus 10 times through 10 different applications that were created over a 10-year period to collect 10 different things because the application that was created before didn't actually think to collect this thing because maybe it wasn't a requirement by law, right? But that's not really the Uh exciting part, but it's important to understand that by going through and doing this human-centered design, we married ourselves up with the culture and we're letting them drive what we're building. We're not asking them to write out a series of requirements and tell us what they want. We're actually watching them do their work. We're actually sitting at a desk with them, watching how many times they have to click submit to get something to work, watching how many times they enter different information. We're mapping it out. We're trying to minimize input. We're trying to minimize system frustration. That's important. That's how you get buy-in from a culture. The other thing that we did that's really interesting is we built this, what we call an AI algorithm. Now, remember, we have a standard data taxonomy and hyperledger fabric. We've cleansed the data when we brought it in. That's our blockchain-based data layer. Now we have access to a pool of data. So our strategy is instead of building a ginormous system or instead of plugging into a ginormous software 
that anytime we make a change or anytime we add an application becomes more and more complex, what we're doing is we're building microservices directly off the data layer, microservices that execute specific actions. So we built this artificial intelligence-based microservice. And what we're doing is we're using natural language processing and we're using machine learning to actually analyze prices paid and to actually read through terms and conditions of a contract. And in real time right now on 10 product categories across the Department of Health and Human Services, we can read terms and conditions, and we can analyze prices paid. And within one second in those 10 products categories, we can give you the range of purchases that occurred. You know, maybe we bought something at four cents. Maybe we bought something at a dollar. Maybe we bought 500,000 of those items. We can give you that range. We can give you the different terms and conditions of every single product that was purchased between four cents and a dollar. And we can give it to the contracting professional in real time within one second so that they can actually see that data and they can negotiate better terms and conditions and better pricing for the department to actually save us money. Think about the power of that. If you were to try to do that, and let's just say it was 500,000 gloves, if you were to try to do that before this capability, you would send out a request for an Excel spreadsheet of all the glove purchases to the 12 different operating divisions of HHS. You would get back 12 different Excel spreadsheets. You would populate them into one giant Excel spreadsheet, and then maybe you'd have an analyst who would use some Excel scripts to actually analyze that data. You're talking about a process that takes months. We've automated that, leveraging artificial intelligence, using natural linguistics processing, so that it can be done in one second. That is extremely powerful. So we are now, we figured out a way to create a business network. We can distribute that information. Hey, did you know with for these terms and conditions you put in, you could actually pay four cents for that glove instead of a dollar. So we can distribute it in real time to the business network at the fringe where operations are occurring. And that is extremely powerful. We've done all of this work that I'm describing since April 17th. It's operational now. It's not in production. I want to be clear about that. But that is extremely powerful. And I know I'm kind of on a rant here, but I'm just going to say one more thing, and then I'll let you guys kind of get into some of your other questions. So why did we map out the business process? And I told you about that earlier. The reason we mapped out the business process is we said, if we're going to get user buy-in, let's find the vacuums in the business process, and let's actually build microservices that automate the intake of that information and then pre-populate documents that are required by law for us to actually enter into federal contracts. So it doesn't mean that they're 100% completed, but it means that they're pre-populated based on information collected at the very beginning of the process. And pre-populating those documents actually streamlines our ability to award a contract uh, because we've made it much easier for the program manager to do market research and to develop a plan for how they're going to acquire something, whether it's a vaccine or whether it's a glove. It doesn't matter. And that is a way for us to create buy-in because if we start at the beginning of the process and we add value by making your life easier, easier, you're more likely to use our business network. Now, all of what I just did is not disrupting the old way of doing business, which involves a bunch of different applications and logging into a bunch of different systems. So we're not actually disrupting our ability to achieve our mission. We're building microservices, one business process at a time to improve the efficiency of how we execute mission and to actually create a decentralized way of pushing data and insights, leveraging an artificial intelligence tool to a decentralized workforce of a couple thousand people that work all across the United States. We believe that that is extremely powerful. Okay. 
Well, that's really good. I mean, obviously, when you talk about procurement, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is, especially some of the other agencies in the U.S. government, all of them do procurement, right? And of course, you have agencies like the GSA. So are you working with them? Are you coordinating them? Are they keeping an eye on what you're doing? What are some of these other agencies doing that's related to what you're doing? And maybe I'll just leave it open like that. Yeah, so great question. So I actually came from GSA on January 9th. I joined HHS on January 9th of 2018. I had worked at GSA until January 8th of 2018. And at GSA, I worked with a team and we actually built a proof of concept where we took blockchain and we used it as a mechanism to automate the contract award process for IT Schedule 70, which is the largest IT contract in the world. And and GSA has continued down the path uh, to actually go ahead and try to implement that. And and I don't know exactly where they are, so I won't comment on it because I've been gone for six months now. So would GSA is aware of what we're doing in the sense that I've been very public about this. I know you and Kathleen have both heard me talk about this publicly, but at HHS, we're actually taking a bigger bite out of the apple in trying to do a proof of concept. And this is a little bit more complex initiative than the work that's underway at GSA. So we also believe that, and from our perspective, Ron and Kathleen, this is extremely important because it fits directly in our mission space. And it is something that actually facilitates the nature and the culture of health and human services. And I'm quite honored that kind of our secretary and our deputy secretary, through the Reimagine Initiative, are open to really looking at ways to reimagine the way operations work here with a focus on mission outcome. So we have been sharing as much as we can, but I don't know that I would say that we are closely coordinating and kind of working together directly on our implementations. I think it's more of a sharing lessons learned and communicating on what we're learning as we go along. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's always interesting to hear how, you know, different government agencies are doing things. And I know that sometimes it's harder to work together than people think. So, you know, you're let let me jump on that for a second, guys. Sure. Here's an interesting concept for you. So we believe in consensus building here, and, and we certainly believe in working together, and we see the benefit of that. But I would say this to all the industry partners who listen to your podcast, and, and I repeat it. If I was an industry partner and I was running a company, and I said that my company was focused on driving innovations in the federal space or for Coca-Cola, I wouldn't target work at the CIO shop that was building consensus to create a platform for 24 different operations within Coca-Cola. I would target the one bottling entity within Coca-Cola that had their own technology support and was really looking to drive innovation. And the reason I would do that is because technology that's associated at the business level unit is focused on driving profit margin. Technology that's focused at the mission space is focused on maybe saving lives and tends to be more open to innovation because it's not consensus-oriented. And I think it's very important that there's a balance when you think about targeting work within a federal agency, if you're a private sector company, or when you think about implementing something, if you're a federal employee. If you're a consensus organization, you're not able to take as much risk, and you have to look department-wide, and you have to kind of standardize and deliver outcomes. However, if you're really trying to push the envelope and maybe save lives, you do have to take more risks and you have to be a less consensus oriented and more focused on outcome. And I think if I'm on the private sector side and I'm focused on innovation, I want to be right by the tip of the spear and I want to be focused on the mission space and facilitating outcomes to protect lives 
versus on the consensus side. So I think it's very important to understand that when you talk about kind of should we partner or should we not partner or should we target work where people are partnering or should we target work that is very program oriented and very aligned with mission. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying that it's a different way of thinking about that. And if you're not thinking about it in that way, you're doing yourself as a company owner and as a leader, if you're within the federal agency, you're doing yourself a disservice because you're not truly understanding what you were put in place to do. So I just wanted to kind of make that point. Okay, well, thank you for making that point and sharing it. And I appreciate the example earlier of how, you know, HHS is using AI. But as a government agency, I know that adoption of new technologies doesn't always happen overnight. So can you tell us some of the examples that you've seen, you know, where you've had pushback with AI adoption and how you overcame that? Yeah, what I would say is that the typical pushback that you get is around describing what you're trying to do. And this is where I think the government has really come a long way since I started my career. And I haven't been in that long, but when you initially go and describe that you wanna use artificial intelligence or you wanna use blockchain technology, it becomes a theoretical discussion about what you're doing. And that is very hard to comprehend and understand. Most people will listen to this podcast and the guys that have done this will understand what I'm saying and they'll find things that I didn't say and they'll kind of pick it apart and maybe send you guys some questions. And the folks that have never kind of played in this space that listen to your podcast, well, maybe won't understand exactly what I'm trying to articulate. Having a theoretical discussion around what you're trying to do is very hard when you're trying to work across a large organization and share it. So I think the biggest pushback that you get is people not understanding. So how do you get people to understand? Well, you engage them. If the best way to learn a foreign language, guys, you happen to have a wife that's from a foreign country. For me, it's to go help her mom cook something and listen to her give me instructions in this language. And I'm actually with my hands making some type of food with her because it takes whatever she's saying and it applies it to something real. So I think the first thing from a cultural perspective is include the culture in the process and be human-centered in terms of how you are designing the functionality that you're trying to build to support the user base that you're targeting. Don't forget about the workforce. Don't make it an exercise where they send you what they need and you disappear for six months and then come back with, here's the solution and try to train them on how to use that. Sit down with them and watch them do their work, watch their frustrations, build something that night or maybe in the next week and then come back and show it to them and get feedback that gives the culture and understanding of what you're trying to do and allows them to have their fingertips in kind of the creation of it. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is you can spend six months to a year talking about this stuff and you may convince one or two people that it's the right thing to do, but by golly, go out and build a proof of concept. Build a proof of concept and show people how it works. And once they see it, then all of the words associated with the discussion become real. Let me give you an example. And this happened to me at a federal agency. It wasn't at HHS. I pitched the use of this blockchain technology, and I had a bunch of people that worked for me in this job. And I'll never forget standing on stage, and let's say the auditorium had 100 people in it. I'll never forget standing on stage, and I could see people rolling their eyes in the front row. And kind of like, oh, we've heard this before. The new guy is going to do something great, never going to work. Every time anybody's promised us something like this, they've taken three years and then, you know, blamed it on the CIO or something. And so that same group that rolled their eyes when we actually built the proof of concept seven weeks later, which involved dynamic engagement with the workforce across that seven weeks, and I showed it, the first words out of their mouth were, wow, now I get it. 
this is amazing. I'll do anything I can to support it. Because the words that you said became reality because now they could see it actually executing live in front of them. And I think if you're going to change something, you have to roll up your sleeves and change it in that way versus just a theoretical discussion. And it's not an argument about what technology to use. It's an argument about how this is going to improve the business process or how this is going to improve the mission outcome and then showing them in a very small dollar value proof of concept. That's the only way you're going to actually drive change. So I would say those are the two things. Human-centered focus in design. Get your workforce kind of digging in and actually making the dinner with you so that they start to understand understand what the language means and what you're saying, and then build a prototype very quickly and show them. And you'll open a lot of eyes when you do that. Great. Well, it sounds like you're clearly a fan of, of agile and minimum viable products and just you know, getting things done and doing stuff and showing things. We're a fan of that too. In my previous life, I was very much involved in all that stuff. And you mentioned microservices as well. So you're touching all the uh, buttons that I really love and enjoy. On the other side of things, you know, there has been some pushback on AI and machine learning and blockchain in some ways as well because of issues of data, privacy, and about storing information, especially when it comes to like, you know, people concerned about the government storing information. So what have you been doing around that? Any thoughts, any actual work? You know, how do you think just in general, these issues of privacy and data will impact AI and machine learning, which as you know, is very data hungry? Yeah, Ron, it's a great question. And I'm going to answer it in kind of two ways, both of which is I want the privacy community to know that we are very sensitive to maybe we don't always grasp the outcome of a failure. And, and I think it's very important that we have groups of, like of privacy. And I think it's very important that we have groups out there that protect us from that and can remind us of the importance of that. I think the first thing is, is when I think about blockchain and artificial intelligence and some of these other technologies we're talking about, we're not starting with personal health information. We aren't starting with the places where we have to be most careful and the places where we have to understand the implications of privacy the most. We're starting with our own procurement system and we're starting with getting an understanding of how we can save money for the taxpayer you know, by buying things in a better way. And so there's less of a privacy risk when you start in that space versus starting with PII or personal health information. So I think that's the first thing. Sure, I would love to jump. I'm sure there's a number of people that would love to jump into personal health information and try to solve some of these afflictions that exist around the world. But let's not start there. Let's start in a more controlled environment where we collect the data already where all of the players that submit the data already agree to submit the data and it's a requirement for doing business. And let's learn how this technology works. And I think the second thing is, if we take that approach, if we take baby steps and we have lessons learned, the second thing is, is we already have large centralized repositories around the world in every economic space that we operate in where personal private information is stored. Think of banking institutions. Think of the healthcare system. And it's not stored, uh, not always in government databases and private sector company databases. And we've seen what has happened to those large centralized repositories over the last few years. They've been attacked. Information has been taken and taken for a number of different reasons from actors around the world. And so I think it's important. And as a civilian federal employee, I think it's important that we look for better ways to actually protect privacy and secure data, knowing that there's a bunch of personal information out there already that's regularly being sought after by adversaries around the world. And so the second way that I would answer this question is we kind of have to get on top of it. And I think some of these technologies, if we learn how to implement them correctly, actually increase our ability to provide privacy and to protect your personal data. 
So the best way to start is not focused on the most sensitive data. It's focused on an environment where data that's shared is already shared and agreed upon to be shared, and we can use it and it's non-human related. But at the same time, using those lessons learned to say, maybe this is a way where we can actually protect people in the United States and protect their information in a better way because we know that this has been sought after information for our adversaries for a number of years now. I know it's not an ideal answer, but I also know that if we don't push into the future, uh, we will become part of the past. And, And I'd rather push into the future in a smart way than actually be a laggard in the past wondering how we're gonna solve a problem that has already kind of passed us by and been solved by other parts of the world. Yeah, well, that's actually a good transition to my next question. So as a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to corporations and beyond? Yeah, that's a great. <laughs> that is a great question, Kathleen. And, and you know, next time I do this show with you guys, I have to outlaw questions like that. I'm teasing. I, uh, <laughs> I think that it, it's a great question. I think that when you look into the future, this AI revolution and this blockchain revolution, it is evolving in real time right before our eyes. And I truly believe this. I believe that every business model that exists in the world that's not oriented around entertainment and that's not oriented around an entertainment brand like Disney or the NBA or the NFL where the product is the game and it's just how it's delivered. I think that every business model that involves a transfer of value will be transformed by artificial intelligence and by blockchain and by some of these other technologies that exist. And in particular, because of that transformation will occur in the private sector, it will fundamentally transform governments. Because even if I'm not looking at implementing it and controlling the implementation of it, the services that will be sold to me will include that capability. And I think that there has to be a recognition of the fact that that's occurring. If you just look at the investment dollars in blockchain alone over the last three years on a global scale, it's significant. It's something like from one or $2 billion in the first year to over $60 billion in the third year, and the growth rate is continuing to extrapolate, right? And those may not be exact numbers, but it's a very significant and steep increase. So you you cannot control human behavior, and the human behavior and human desire and demand will drive how companies actually modernize and transform themselves. And that will drive a fundamental change to what government buys from a service perspective and how government operates. And I don't think that there's a way to actually stop that. So we have to learn as much about it as we can so that we are educated consumers and that we can kind of stay as close to the cutting edge as possible, whether we're in the private sector, whether we're a citizen you know, living in northeastern Pennsylvania where I grew up, or whether we're a civilian government employee. I think it's extremely important to understand that. It's a train that's driving down a track that humanity is actually pushing forward. It's not a single individual or a single demand trigger in the marketplace that's pushing it forward. It is a desire of humanity. And I think it's very important to look at it that way. Mm, That's great. Well, I'm definitely hopeful. I I know that big believers in cognitive technologies and blockchain and all these sorts of approaches to really solving some of the problems that have traditionally been harder to automate and just solve a lot of those issues, just like we were big fans a, a little over a decade ago of microservices moving away from big monolithic systems that people had to spend, you know, months, if not years, trying to re-engineer, realizing that they could break things down in a much more easy-to-consume way. Here we are with this technology, machine learning, that's allowing us to solve these harder problems. So we're big fans, and and we're glad that there's someone like you taking the helm there at HHS to bring these things to fruition. So you're just going to... the one point you said, and I think you really hit it on the head, you know, you talked about, and I apologize for 
for interrupting you, but no, I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. And, and you know, yeah. I'm, all, I'm a big fan of the podcast, by the way. You know, if anybody out there doesn't listen to this and this is the first time, you should kind of add this and then you should listen to it regularly. I think you guys do a wonderful job. I just want to add, I mean, you know, you are talking about the decentralized delivery of services to individual human beings. This technology gives you the ability to actually individualize services at a human level. So it actually empowers the individual even more. And I think when you think about it that way, you're looking at the ability for humans to not actually consume, and I'm going to use a beer example, where everybody doesn't just drink Bud Light. They actually go out and buy the craft beer that they want. And imagine if whether that's applied to healthcare. Imagine if that's the way it is with personal records. Imagine if that's the way that it is with what doctors you may see, right? And this technology and the evolving from a monolithic system to microservices and now using this technology, is it going to allow for the decentralized delivery of services and ownership of personal information in that manner? directly based on your needs, your wants, your desires, whatever, which allows you to focus on some of the more creative aspects of your life that maybe you didn't have time to focus on before or didn't have the tools to focus on. And it's exactly what you just said. And I think it's an evolution towards that. That is extremely powerful. It's a really exciting time. So I just had to make that point. I'm sorry to run over on the show. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, thank you for chiming in there. So some of our listeners might remember that we met at the AI and blockchain panel that we were on a few months ago. So it's great to catch up again, Jose. And thank you for joining us. So listeners, as always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, including a link to the AI and blockchain panel discussion podcast. So thank you for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. This podcast is sponsored by... Fiverr.com. Fiverr is a marketplace for creative and digital freelance services. And in fact, I use Fiverr for quite a lot of the things that we do here at Cognolytica and AI Today, including the editing of this podcast, the generation of transcripts, and more. I definitely encourage you to take a look at using Fiverr for your creative and digital needs today. And I have a special offer for you today. Use the promo code AI Today for 15% off your first purchase on Fiverr.com. Offer valid until December 31st, 2018. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright 2018 by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.